a Podcast One production. Ben Quilty has been, since he won the Archibald Prize in 2011, one of Australia's best-known artists. But he's also one of Australia's most high-profile artistic commentators on international affairs, in particular war and the modern theatre of battle. He's my guest today, Ben Quilty. Welcome to The Big Questions. Thank you for having me. Going to start with, because I'm sure I'm going to cover some ground here that you've covered before, I'm going to start with a question I presume you've never been asked before. When I was typing up a few notes for myself here into my phone, and when I put in the word quilty, it actually offered me, do you mean quirky, or do you mean quality? Which would be more accurate? No, more in between, (laughs) quilt-like. Like a blanket, but more of the quilt variety, and I am sort of like one of those, which is quilty. Yeah, okay. Um, Quirky, or what was the other one? Quality. Quality, oh, both. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Both and quilt-like. <laughs> you're clear, You're an artist and clearly in touch with a deep artistic sensibility. Do you remember that as a lifelong thing or does it emerge in you at some stage? Take us back to when you're much younger. Uh, I, I, li- I just always liked drawing. I liked doing things with my hands and I wasn't very – by the time I was about 14, I was not studious. I wasn't concentrating at school. Um, there'd been a fairly – big barrage of violence through my year seven as well mm. from a, a brother at, a, at the Catholic boys school I was at. And I think looking back that, that I lost a fair bit of um, respect for authority, I guess, and I became pretty rebellious by the time 15, 16 came through. I wasn't I wasn't spending a lot of time studying. Were I you still at that school? Still at that school, yeah. And that sort of behaviour would have had wider ripples through the whole year group, I presume. Yeah, that's right. And at the end of year seven, the New South Wales State Government um, banned corporal punishment, but no one thought to explain to the 200 little boys who were coming into year yeah. eight that the brothers no longer were allowed to hit them. It was it should have been explained. I mean, a yeah. tricky thing to explain, but none, nonetheless, there should have been some discussion around it. And, of course, all our parents had no idea it was happening at yeah. that time. It was in 86 or 87 or whatever it was. Yeah. But all I liked doing was drawing, and I wanted to go to. Um, I tried to get into NIDA, but they had four pieces to learn. I only learnt one, and I thought I was strong enough. I'm still waiting to hear back from them. They said <laughs> we'll get back to you, and they never did. And I got into art school. I was interested in architecture as well, but didn't didn't get the marks. But as the parent of two kids myself, I can remember when they first bring home drawings, and and then someone might draw something. And go, wow, I can see what that. Then I remember once one of my girls coloured something in and the teacher said they've coloured the sky all the way down to the land. That's a good sign. That's an appreciation of the sky. It's not just that's probably where the artistic journey ended for both of <laughs> would, would, would it have been clear? Someone looking at something you're drawing when you're eight or nine. Yeah. Yeah, would, I was good at it. Would have been clearly, wow, this is there's something there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was I was, I was very good at it. I, I remember when I was little, my, an, a babysitter, a mate who's still a very close mate of mine, he's a mm. plumber in Sydney, he um he could draw. He used to draw ace little cavemen holding up ACDC albums made out of rock, and the rock was crumbling in his hand. I yeah. don't know where he got the idea and putting them on a shelf, and it got into the yearbook, the little yearbook at the public school I was at, yeah. 
And I taught from then on, became obsessed with drawing motorbikes and you know all the things that little boys like drawing. And I became good at it. And mum was mum was studying art the whole way through. Where does it come in? In a, in a really young person, artistic talent is it is is it a, an ability to see a little bit better, or is it is it an understanding of shape, or is it hand eye coordination? Where does real Artistic well, they say from- that it's around four that you get proper hand-eye coordination. And, uh, from four on, you can draw. You go back to the Italian Renaissance, all children could draw beautifully. All children, arguably, could draw like Leonardo da Vinci. It's just that wow. who took the drawing on? And drawing was one of the pillars of all the education system mm. then. Who took it on to turn the drawing into art? Because drawing is, is a skill, it's not an art. Um, it's a skill that you use. Architects use drawing. Lots of lots of different um, um, trades use drawing. But how you then use it to, to go on and to, to talk conceptually about the world or how we fit in or what it is, that's the art form. Um, and all children can learn. It's really easy. They, they learn quickly. Both my kids can draw. And my mum really taught me how to draw. She taught me how to look. It's about looking at the thing in front of you and using your hand-eye coordination to let your hand recreate what's sitting in front of you. You, you were displayed in what's called Art Express, which is like the in, in New South Wales, your final year of high school, best of the best of all the students who study art from around the state. What was your work then, can you recall? Uh, yeah, I made it. I made a painting of it. I made two paintings, one the night before it was due in, which meant that I failed. <laughs> I actually failed because fifty percent of that course was was the yearbook, the book. You, the, it's called a um, visual arts process diary, and I had zero visual arts process diary for that painting. And it was a because you did it the night before it was due. Yeah, self portrait, looking confused. That's what it was. Yeah. And the other painting was an Aboriginal man being crucified on a cross over Sydney Harbour. And I and when I look back on it, it was kind of confronting thing for the Catholic school that I was at to take on board. Sure. Uh, and that, and they both did really well. I got into Art Express, and I actually won a scholarship to Julian Ashton Art School from from Art Express. There's something nice about winning a scholarship on the back of a piece of work that failed. You, they've changed the rules, which I think is very unfair. <laughs> and now you have to get, you have to pass your practical, your visual process diary to get into Art Express, which I think is deeply, deeply flawed idea. I would have not got in, and who would, who knows what would have happened. L- looking on the uh, the MCA website. Uh, describes your work and also cites uh, encounters with drug and alcohol. Good in your use great. as a as a formative. Yes. Are you comfortable talking about yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. they're hinting at there? Yes. Oh, it's not. Look, the same as you, I'm sure. Same as all of us growing up in Australia. Most children at some point go through a fairly serious drug phase. I think the statistics for, and fact check me on this in the eighty low eighty percent mm. of of children becoming adults trying some form of illicit drugs. Uh, Northwestern Sydney at that time there was a wave of ecstasy that came through the first wave of ecstasy and everyone was using it and I remember thinking late nineteen eighties early nineteen nineties that's it no one is not using it I had no friends that I'd gone all the way through primary school with and some through high school and my mates from that community none of them were not either using a lot of illegal drugs or really excessive overuse of alcohol. And my first work that really 
I think was successful in terms of art was actually examining that. Why? Why is that happening? Why young men and women, all of us involved in those crazy risk-taking behaviours that involved illegal drugs and massive amount of alcohol? There's a long tradition of people using substances to enhance their perception and it's spilling over into their their painting or their music or their poetry. Does if used properly, can some illicit substances enhance people's artistic perception? No, I don't think so. Doesn't has never helped me. Yeah. I remember when I was, you know, a very young man, thinking I'd made them a masterpiece that would change the course of Western art, and woke up in the morning and realised that I'd wasted about fifty dollars worth of paint <laughs> in a grey mess that should have been called grey mess, um, atrocious. And uh, I mean, look. I think you've got to. This sounds this sounds sort of deep, but you've got to keep your ego in check when you're creating. It's really important that you understand who you are while you create. And I don't even really understand why. But if if drugs just amp up your ego, and then there's you lose the somehow you lose the truth. The the the, the grittiness of reality gets lost in that process. Well, if that's the case, then winning something like the Archibald Prize, which you did after having entered multiple times, that obviously changes your world. And how, how does one not let one ego get a little bit pumped up when you finally crack the most famous art prize in Australia? Yeah, I, look, it's a good question. But I had I, been on the road. I'd won the Whiteley Scholarship before. I'd won a number of things. I, I guess, yeah, it's a good point. Some people fall at that point. Yeah. They falter and they fall. If you don't keep that in check, you, you can't. In my opinion, it's really hard to make good work. And even the people who are the creators, creative people that I know that are seen to be publicly egotistical, when you see them in their practice, they're quite humble, hardworking, dedicated to the practice. They can let it go in their studio. Um, so maybe maybe you can go along with the public persona being way, way up yourself after mm. you've won a big prize, but you need to pair it back when you go back to the studio. How many times had you entered the Archibald before? I think it was the fifth time that yeah. I won. Then Margaret Ollie got the nod. Mm. Was it better than the other four or is it is it a real crapshoot in that Can't, sense? Yeah. It was a good painting to win a prize like that. Yeah. For Margaret Ollie, great subject at the end of her life. She died six months after the painting yeah. won the Archibald. So that was pretty poignant for me because she'd been a huge supporter of mine. Um, she was a huge benefactor to the gallery um, in some ways, I'd held off making a painting of her, and Kylie, my partner, kept saying, "If you paint Margaret, you'll win. You'll win if you paint Margaret." But she didn't fit in. I made a painting of Jimmy Barnes that was a finalist, yes. called "Over the Hills and Far." Uh, sorry, um, called "Here, but for the grace of God, go I." And it was him off his face, which he acted, and I made paintings about him playing this off his face mm. character, um, which fitted more with my work. Margaret didn't, except that. I guess it was a homage to all the support she'd given me, and yeah, it was a. There's paintings that do that are good at winning prizes. There's no doubt about that, and that was one of them. There, and there are some people who say of the Archibald, maybe even as, not as much now, but I got the impression there was a period ten years ago or so when some people thought it had become a little bit of a sort of reality TV show. Sort of, yeah. It was the bigger the name and the celebrity you could paint. If they pick that in the final 12, that'll get more publicity. Did, was there a period there when adjusting to the modern media age, the Archibald ha had to grapple with yeah, it's populism a versus integrity? It's a really good point. I think so, yeah. 
I mean, you know, social media and Instagram all had come up around that time. Yeah. And you're right, the reproduction of, of celebrity, the f- reproduction of the face of celebrity is so massive at that point that people did need to get a hand, handle on it. I think there was a real, um, there was a, an ocean of very photorealistic paintings of very famous people. Hmm. Um, but in more recent times, and, and there's, I mean, you can't win. In the arts, you can't win. The, the criticism is now there's a lot of self-portraits of unknown artists but in my community of artists, those people are really important. Yeah. They are important and they are well known in letters and science, sciences and the arts, which is what the rule states. Uh, and that's about making paintings and the practice of sitting with yourself if it's in a mirror, mm. which is something I always fall back on. People suggest it's something to do, some narcissistic, late narcissism that you're making self-portraits. <laughs> but to have a... And most of my paintings now are a, a big, fat, old men looking like Santa Claus. I have to have them in the studio. It's full on. It's 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 time-consuming. It's, it's sort of emotionally draining having these people in the studio that you have to manage their expectations and their their sense of who they are and all those sorts of things, much easier to get a mirror out and look at yourself. And I challenge anyone to stare at themselves in the mirror for more than 30 minutes and not think how strange a human being is. Hmm. And really self-portraits are going back to Titian's self-portraits, all the great self-portraits. When you look at them, they all look, there's a sternness and a and an intense gaze. And it's and you do it in a mirror. Anyone can do it. You don't have to be making a painting. Just look at yourself and consider the way we are formed and the way we look, where hair grows. How did how did a million years of of, of the development of, of our our figure come to make us look like this? It's extraordinary. People often ask me about public speaking. They'll say, "Look, I'm really nervous. Give me some tips." And, you know, when I'm in a room and just everyone's looking at it, and I say to people with public speaking. I think a lot of the time what's actually putting you off is not the 200 eyes that are looking at you. It's if you give a speech, it's one of the few occasions where for six or seven minutes you hear nothing but your own voice. Mm, Normally in conversation, even just people going, yeah, little interactions, that silence and that singularity is really confronting. So I say to people, if you can look at yourself in a mirror Mm. and give that speech for four or five minutes, the whole thing, without being self-conscious, going, I'm going to stop. If you can look at yourself and do it, then in a room of people listening and reacting, it becomes quite natural. There is something, It's mm. there's a parallel there, I think. There's something about just confronting just you and yourself. Yes. And, and, and pushing through that because there's all, it's weird how there's these natural inhibitions that after a minute of looking at yourself speaking right. in a mirror, you just want to stop. You, yeah, a minute. You, you're minute. totally weirded out by it. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And I've done it hundreds and hundreds of times. And you start to realise the way the world looks at you. The, your flaws, everything, the weirdness of, of humanity and of consciousness. I mean, all the bigger, broader issues around yeah. that are philosophical issues about consciousness and where, who, are, who are we, yeah. how the privilege of being alive and feeling the world and sensing the world and making paintings close up of your face, of your eyes. Um, well, it's interesting because where we are on the journey through your life, you know, the next big thing in this massive year of 2011, of course, is you become the Australian war artist. Now, can I ask, was that, were you already in the frame to be the war artist or did the Archibald Prize give you a prominence where people involved? Was there any link between those no, two events? No, the, the War Memorial researches the artists for some time just to see that they, um, I think probably to see that they will cope, that they can, that they're resilient enough, mm-hmm. that they they make um, probably 
they want to make sure that the artist makes considered decisions about when and how they make public comments about things. So what is, what is, let's go back one step. What is the role? Because when I told someone I was interviewing you and I mentioned you'd been the Australian war artist, mm. they said, no disrespect to you, having mm. done it. They didn't even know there was such a thing. But this has a long... Was Arthur Streeton? Streeton was one of the yeah. first, yeah. And he, he's had, there's just been a show of his work from the Western Front and the Battle of the Somme, extraordinary work. Wow. He made 100 paintings around the Battle of the Somme. Um, and they're some of the most powerful records of, of, of that growing sense of Australian identity. And he must have been physically there right in the thick of it. You can't... You can't get stories relayed back to him. He would have spent time at the absolute he front. He he was a he was made a captain to go, and they actually pulled him back from the front because it was too dangerous. And on at the he was sitting on a hill looking down across the plain as the Battle of the Somme happened. Oh. And the the horizon of one of his most famous paintings is just the horizon being obliterated. You can hear the you can sense the sound that he would have felt. And the earth moving as, as you know, 50,000 people were obliterated on mm. that, 40,000 people on that first day. Oh. And, and so you inherit this tradition and the role is still to capture and, 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 and depict. It, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing brief, really. Um, there's other artist residencies that involve going out with defence personnel. Americans do it. But a lot of them are to do with engaging propagandists, mm. really. Uh, whereas the Australian War Memorial very much um, sticks to its mantra of of giving top artists total independence, and at that time the the director before Brendan Nelson said to me, "We will back you even if you have negative story to tell. You need to know that we will back you." That's interesting. I just watched the Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War, mm. and it's amazing. It's ten episodes. They're each an hour and a half. It's it's a, it's a big commitment, but it's quite mm. incredible. And they speak to some of the journalists. Mm. And there were journalists reporting on key battles there and actually telling the truth. Mm. Changed the narrative entirely from the American government saying at home, we've got this, this will be over in months, don't panic. Mm. There's some crucial decisions key journalists make that suddenly change that whole story. Mm. Interesting to hear the the briefing you were given of, as you see it, just call it. Yes, and, and they backed me up. Really, they did all the way through it. And I and there was a there was a period there. I think the Australian Defence Force wished I hadn't gone because I, I was right at the height in two thousand and twelve. Um, the day I left, three Australians were killed with green on blue attack. Um, blue on green, sorry. The Afghan man turned on the Australians and mowed down many of them with an AK forty seven and thirty rounds, and then ran off. Um, was there any thought given to maybe? delaying your arrival for a little bit of time? No, it was my day of coming out of Afghanistan that that happened. Oh. Um, and then, and it was only a month there, but I sensed the, the tension, the stress, mm. the sort of horror of mm. the, the emotion that goes with it. Uh, I stood with men, you know, with a priest blessing, putting holy water on two bushmasters as they drove out at three o'clock in the morning. You know, they're hard hard to describe. These two trucks driving out under night vision in pitch blackness out to, and they were two commando going out to engage with with the enemy. Big questions. How did you prepare yourself before you went? What could you do to prepare yourself to be in the best position to 
well, be resilient enough for the experience and also to be true to yourself. My, my mate, Sean Gladwell, Sean and I went to art school together. Sean represented Australia at Venice some years back. He'd done it in two, he'd been in 2009. Mm. So I had the opportunity to ask Sean questions. And the one thing Kylie said to me is, you, I'm happy for you to go, but she didn't want me to go in a Bushmaster, which is where a lot of the casualties, Australian serious injuries, um, IEDs were killing and maiming quite a lot of Australians and, and thousands of Americans. <clears throat> so I agreed. So I was flown in and out of spots, which made it safer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I noticed young men I felt was under unbelievable pressure. And I just thought, I just had a sense that things were going to go very badly for some of them when they came home. And the first thing that happens when they come home is they, they have this huge burst of adrenaline and it's survival. Yeah. It's from surviving nine months. Mm. They're doing nine months or six months in, in special forces. When realistically there are several moments where you could die. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the special forces guys yeah. were killing, were involved in huge numbers of casualties, enemy casualties, and the highest rate of their own casualties, but massively, overwhelmingly were killing uh, the enemy, mm. who had no, no night vision goggles. I mean, had no sh- quite often no shoes. Some of them were using heroin. They'd find the body, and next to the body would be a kit that, of a spoon and, and the opium that they were using. So they were fight, and they had huge respect for the enemy, which I think always happens in mm. those circumstances of that completely obscene, meaningless shooting at each other, trying to kill each other. Mm. There was a level of respect, but then coming back to and one of the fellows that I became friends with, when got his first year apprentice as a carpenter down in Kiama, and after three months found out that he was being ripped off, that he was being underpaid. And at that point in his life, a little thing like that was catastrophic, unbearable. And I saw it. I felt for him. I thought, there's no job for you back in this country now, having done what you've done, four tours he'd done of nine, seven to nine months. Mm. There's nothing here for you. I I completely saw how Mm. and why these fellows were going to have so many, were, 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 in harm, really in more harm's way here than they had been there. There was a famous image in a movie of a, a returned American, yeah, and he's, he's in a, an aisle in a, in a, sh- a supermarket mm. and just looking up and trying to choose between 16 brands of toothpaste or whatever and just the banalness of that choice mm. and just the overwhelming number of options yes. is too much for him. Yeah after what he's been through in a situation of where your life's in peril, coming back and trying to choose between 16 different times. Do I want triple stripe or whitening or do I pay... Le- uh, and and the, it all just becomes too much. And that's a, an yes. artistic depiction, but it's... Yeah. We're starting absolutely. to understand more and more it's a real issue for returned service people, isn't it? And, well, and remembering in America, uh, because of their flag-waving madness, if there's any veterans on an aeroplane, most towns around America, when that plane's taking off or landing, they'll announce that there's veterans and the whole plane claps. Hmm. So there's a real level of acknowledgement and in that sense support, whereas here, no one knows who they are. Hmm. I mean, I I came home and researched my tiny little town in rural New South Wales. There were six guys who'd served in Afghanistan and I had no idea there were any. So they're right through our community. They're quite often from regional areas because there's less work and they want to get out of their region. 
they're 19, they're looking down the barrel of a Sense of adventure. Yeah. Adventure, learning, going to Afghanistan, learning Pashtun, then getting there, and many of them, the engineers, many of them were protecting little girls' schools and giving children the chance of education for the first time in several generations. And it wasn't lost on me that there was also a good story coming out of Afghanistan that mm. most definitely wasn't being told. And if if I'm pushed, considering that we invaded Iraq, we actually did have a responsibility to stand up for the people in Afghanistan. And it's complicated. Mm. I'm absolutely against war. But we did invade Iraq. I marched against the invasion mm. of Iraq. I was, my mum was f- furiously against that at that time and impressed on me that this will have catastrophic lead-on effects through the Middle East for years to come. And my mum was right. Um, that you, has did, happened. And it's no good for us just to pull out and ignore what we've the mess that we have, as a democracy, played a massive role in doing. I, I think it's certainly sharpened your you know, politics in the broader sense around those issues. Did the time there affect your your psyche and your emotional resilience? Mm. It definitely did, yeah. It was strange coming home, very strange. As soon as you're home, people say, what was it like? And I thought, I've been there one month unarmed. For these guys coming home after nine months, mm. that question, what was it like, is impossible. To, it, it's so, it feels so profoundly overwhelming to come back. Um, it definitely took a while. But, but again, I, I feel pretty bulletproof. I mean, it's the wrong, an ugly term to use yeah. in this conversation, but I go to my studio and I get to respond. And inevitably, my work, I couldn't see how it wouldn't be about how ugly an experience for these young men and women was to be in a place that actually is so dramatically beautiful, which mm-hmm. with such extraordinary history. And I've seen photos your, bro- your brother's taken. Cousin. Cousin, sorry, has taken mm. from over there. Mm. Stunning. Mm. Andrew's been there for six years, yeah. living in and around Kabul. So is there a line to be drawn from, from that, that experience for you, those moments, to the book you've just released, Home, Drawings by Syrian Children? Am I being simplistic to say no, no. There's, a, there's a commonality there? Definitely. One, one of the questions, I mean, look, going, and I was quite aware that agreeing to be a part of this would would was would cause some anguish from parts of the community that there was somehow by my engagement uh, an, an active role in participation which meant I was somehow implicated in being pro-war. And one of the questions that I found confronting when I got home was why have I not told the story of the Afghan people? Well, it was hmm. absolutely impossible for me to do when I was embedded with Australian Defence Force and the Americans. Impossible, dangerous and impossible. And I felt for it. I mean, I met children, but really it was impossible. And this just felt like an extraordinary opportunity to answer, to, to, for me to unpick that, to, to answer that question. Tell us a bit about the book, because we, we spoke earlier, I spoke about you know, when my kids did cute little drawings and all that sort of stuff. And then you look at some of the drawings in this and you go, right, okay, so that's... That's a kid doing a painting. That's yeah, that's a kid yes. doing a drawing. Tell us about home. Well, look, you you nailed it. The first time I saw a little girl draw, I asked her to draw her home very innocently, asked her to draw her home, and she was in a Serbian transit station on her way to Germany. She was six years old, and she punched out this drawing of a, a Apache attack helicopter, three distinctly barrel-shaped bombs, and a, and a destroyed home with two bullet-ridden Blood, bloody bodies beside it, mm-hmm. and I thought that, that there's nothing more that I can say. That she's just 
answered the world's question or or posed a big question for the world to answer on her behalf and i just realized at that moment that i could be a, i could be a way for many children to tell their story so how how did you source the works and you just mentioned you were in a, a transit camp so what what were the journeys that brought these richard flanagan asked me to go your fellow him. rat bag fellow rat bag yeah yeah he is he's much worse than me adam <laughs> much worse he won't hear this, will he? You're, you're a moderating influence on him. So what did you do? <laughs> yeah, no. He, uh, he asked me to go with him. He, he was writing a story. World Vision had had quite an adventurous idea to allow some creatives to go in and tell a story of the exodus of Syrians out of Syria, um, to tell a story to re-engage empathy in our community, and, and they hoped more broadly. So uh, The Guardian in London picked the story up, World Vision paid for Richard and I to go. Well, we paid ourselves. They they mm. provided the the um, the infrastructure, I guess, and the knowledge and the, the the security briefings to get around the border of Syria and to witness the refugee camps and then to follow the refugees as they left north, heading to Germany. Uh, and um, and I was there to illustrate his story, which he then, which Penguin Random House then published into a beautiful book called Notes on an Exodus. Uh, and I've, and Richard's essay is just extraordinary and very heartbreaking, very confronting, and it is the journey that he and I took. Mm. But on that journey, I'd hoped to give more, and I couldn't. It's hard. I, I'm very much a studio-based artist. I didn't want to rely on photographs. I did a few drawings. But when that little Heber, that little six-year-old, did that drawing, and Richard and I discussed that there was the opportunity, there was a much bigger thing that I could give to aid Richard's essay and it was the book of drawings and we then I then went back and forwards to the Middle East and World Vision helped facilitate workshops and we ended up with thousands of children's drawings from from all the way around Syria and northern Iraq Turkey Jordan uh, Lebanon Serbia Austria America, Germany, all around the world where refugees are lucky enough to have resettled or the ones that are still stuck around the borders of Syria. There's also drawings that came were smuggled out of war-torn Syria. Smuggled ISIS out? Were, they were. Well, obviously it makes sense that ISIS would ban coloured pencils. I mean, just the most <laughs> ob- ob- obscene rules that they've made up on the run as they chase and murder and slaughter people. Um, coloured pencils are illegal under their, their law. Because it's often where the trouble starts, yeah, I find, I in a community. Well, look at me for an example. Yeah. <laughs> when I was three or four years old, it was a big mistake, mum and dad. <laughs> there, there would be some... There, you would hear this. There would be some people that say when, when an artist makes statements or dedicates a portion of their life to this sort of stuff, there are some people who say... You're awesome at what you do, mm. but stick to your knitting. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're I know. an artist, you're a clothes designer, yeah. you're a poet. You don't understand how complicated international relations are. Yes. You don't understand why wars happen, etc. What do you say when you hear that pushed back at people? Well, well I, look, who I, honestly, take a stance? I honestly feel now that I have a f- broader grasp of what's happening in Lebanon, for example, following on from the s- civil war in Syria, than the most many of the diplomats that I've met, yeah. <laughs> you know, what, who, who, what's to say, who's to say who's allowed to speak up for things? And I, I do cop that a lot, that what would you know, go back and make paintings. But I don't make pretty paintings. They're often involved in things like this. I'm driven to, to, to tell the stories of, of, of human history unravelling before me. 
um, engaged and interested in it. And in the end of the day, they just can't stop me and it annoys them. So I I'm driven to keep doing it, really. The more they say don't, the more I want to do it. Let me ask you one final question. Uh, it's We've recently come through in uh, in Australia recently, football season and football grand final. And I know someone who's associated with one of the teams who played in this year's AFL grand final. And he said, the people who come out of the woodwork and start leaning on you, can I get a ticket to the game? Can I get in there? When you win the Archibald Prize, do people start hitting you up for a little bit of, if I came round, could <laughs> yeah. you just do a quick little portrait of me or my mate or my, my daughter for her birthday? Do you, do you, get, do you get art hit-ups? I, I I've been hit up a few times to make portraits for the Archibald, which is a funny, I've got an idea. We should make a painting together of me for the Archibald. <laughs> And there's a really loud alarm bell ringing in my head then that this is probably not the subject that I'm most interested in. <laughs> um, look, I, I judge, a, I, look, I get asked a lot by younger artists to, to come into the studio and, and have mentoring. Mm. Um, but I, I, I don't think that there's any way you can be mentored. The key to, doing, to having an art practice is going to your studio and, and working hard and finding your own language. Um, it's like handwriting. And it takes years to develop the handwriting and you've got to find that unique language before you even start to, to tell stories. Do you have days where after eight hours in the chair you think, I've achieved absolutely nothing? Every day. But are there other yeah. days when it's just pouring yeah. out of you at a rate that you can, right. you can barely contain? That's right. And and look, that they use the term practice and I think it's, it is a fair enough term. It's like legal practice or a yoga practice mm. or football practice. People who are good at it do it a lot and you go through the bad days and, and I now understand clearly don't get too, I don't get too distraught about the really bad days because inevitably you'll have one of those cracker days where you come up with ideas that can last your lifetime and a few good works as well. You've just got to put up with the crap that comes before it you and had, expect it to come again. You have had many cracker days and may you have many Many more. It's been great asking you a few big questions. Ben Quilty. Thanks, mate, for having me. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon. Big questions.